This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. It's the Equalizer Podcast. It's episode 71. My name is Dan Lawletta, John Halloran, and Chelsea Bush are along for the ride this week. And it was a busy week. We had a coaching change for the U.S. national team. We had a U.S. national team friendly as they began their victory tour. And for what I thought were mostly pretty interesting games in the NWSL. Uh, but let's open up with conversation about the U.S. And uh, if you were watching the NWSL, you know that I was calling all those games. So I w- I'm behind on the U.S. in terms of their actual play. But they beat Ireland. 3-0, Ireland did not get Denise O'Sullivan. Courage said no because it's not a FIFA window. So Ireland already overmatched, but one of their better players wasn't there just for that reason. bunch of U.S. injuries, including Mallory Pugh, a late scratch, because I saw her in the starting lineup and then found out she was a late scratch. And Tobin Heath, who was not supposed to be in the lineup, um, wound up scoring, I think, the opening goal in the game. But, John, Chelsea, you guys um, are a little bit more locked into that game, so why don't you kick us off with some... Talk about how it went, then we'll get into the coaching move. Yeah, it was it was a game. A game happened. Um, like on, I it just I'm not saying they they didn't play badly. They played fine, but it just it was clearly a friendly celebration game. Players may or may not really have wanted to be there. Um, I thought it was interesting that we, they kind of did the opposite of, of what tends to happen. Is they scored all their goals in the first half. And then the second was kind of, it reminded me of one of the, the, the things that I will not miss about Ellis, which we'll get to, and that is her substitution patterns, because they're just bizarre sometimes. <laughs> like, I'm thinking, you know, at halftime, Emily Sonnet comes on for Kelly O'Hara at right back. Ten minutes later, Allie Krieger comes on for, Car- I think it was Carly Lloyd. Crystal Dunn, who was at left, started at left back, moved up top. Emily Sonnet moved over to left back, and Krieger was at right. And I'm just like, why, why didn't you just sub, you know, Krieger on at half for O'Hara? And then, you know, it just, it seems convoluted. So anyway, but other than that, the game was, it was fine. They had fun. Lauren Holiday was there, which was really cool. John, I, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, you know, I just think that for me, at least, this was probably the least interested I've been in a U.S. game that I can remember just because at least in 2015, the Olympics were coming up and you had, you at least assume the same coach was going to be there. So like there was like this eye towards what's coming next year. Whereas now with Ellis leaving, I'm not sure I care at all what happens over these next four games because they're not going to give you any insight into how the coach might line the team up or which players she might be favoring or not favoring. Um, and the roster is going to be the same. So there, listen, it's nice. I'm sure it's nice. The fans, you know, back home who, 
you know, want to go see him in person. Awesome. Um, but from a, like a tactical or an analytical standpoint, they're useless. I feel that way about a lot of friendlies, but I get your point that they're, they're not even building toward anything yeah. at this point in time. And did it make it worse for you that it pulled players out of the NWSL games? Yes, that was kind of <laughs> annoying. It was I mean, kind I, of like more than kind of. You're like at this point of momentum. That's, I think, for the problem for me. Because, listen, even, even, even coaches who are outspoken understand that U.S. soccer is playing their sal- paying their salaries and going to pull them out of some of these games. But you're coming back from a World Cup. The players have been back for two weeks. You're starting, you know, you're, you're riding this wave of momentum. And then, you know, and I, I asked at least two people yesterday. I said, how many people have come out to this game in Bridgeview expecting to see Julie Ertz or Kristen Press or Alyssa Nair. And I guarantee, listen, it might not have been a lot, but there's a lot of people who are not locked in to the day-to-day, you know, machinery and news the way that we are. And I'm sure people were confused or have been confused. I, I had a friend who went to the first game back um, in Cary, North Carolina, expecting to see the World Cup players. Yeah, I, I feel like, and this is kind of a separate conversation, but I feel like one of the things that needs to happen for women's soccer is we need to embrace the average fan more so than just the diehard fan. And, and to that end, the communication on this has been dreadful. In fact, the league didn't even update the injury report between July 19th and I think like maybe Friday night or Saturday morning, something like that. Without that, there was literally no communication specific to these teams in the league that the players wouldn't be there. And that's well, and for the players themselves. Yeah, sorry to cut you off there. Jeremy. No, go ahead. I also think for the players themselves, like they're just now getting settled back into being yeah. with their yeah. clubs. Yep. And they're they're yanked away again. Like it just and I mean the seasoning is winding down. Like you've got to get these playoffs spots sooner rather than later. And I just and I think that's part of the reason it was just I felt like it was kind of lackluster. It's well, gr- it's great for the fans, and I, I get that these are especially if there are our new fans are playing locations that don't have NWSL teams, and then that's what the point of the victory tour is is a celebration, and they they deserve that. But it could have been handled a lot better. There are international windows specifically for these types of games. It wouldn't have hurt to wait for the first one. I spoke to a lot of coaches this week, having done the broadcast, and my general question was: Is it more awkward this week to have the international, the U.S. players go back out than it was at any other point in the season? And most of them said yes, and one of them went off on the fact that the game was ridiculous. I won't mention any names, but you might be able to figure out which coach that was. But it's true. I mean, it just doesn't make any, you know, it never makes any sense that U.S. soccer is funding the league and they pull their most important players out of what is arguably the most vital time this league has ever had. So I'll leave it there. Last thing on the, go ahead, John. I was just going to say that, uh, you know, because Chelsea was mentioning, you know, the players coming in and out. And this is, you know, for East Coast players, this is a four and a half hour flight three-hour time change. And there's Wednesday games, too. Yeah, three-hour time change back, four-and-a-half-hour flight back to the East Coast. (laughs) You know, it certainly isn't putting them in the best position to contribute or at least, you know, uh, play at the top of their ability for their clubs either. Now, last thing on the game, 37,000 at the Rose Bowl. That's a very good number in a vacuum. Yes. 
could they have done? And Anthony DeChico, who works in soccer as Tony DeChico's son, had a tweet that said they should have done um, legacy price pricing. $4 for kids because of four stars, 19 for adults for the 2019 World Cup. Maybe they could have sold it out. Apparently, the ticket prices were high. 37000 a good number because it's 37 or a poor number because it's the Rose Bowl that seats 90-plus? I think it's... It's exactly what you said, isn't it? Because it looks it, right. Just what Chelsea was about to say, right? That did you guys see the pictures? It looked awful. It looked awful, but like, it's a good go, number. It's a good number, but go play where where LAFC plays and sell that out. You know, right. like it looked awful. Yeah. I think if I think if you're gonna go to the Rose Bowl, then you have to aspire yeah. to at least get sixty or seventy thousand people in there, and if not, then yeah, go to. What is it? Bank of California Stadium or wherever. Totally yep. agree. All right. Now, Ellis was the coach, but Ellis uh, stepped down earlier in the week, which feels like about a month ago, at least to me. But she won't be the coach anymore after the October matches. That ends the victory tour. There will be November friendlies. That won't be the victory tour. And whoever is in charge of the team at that point can bring in whoever they want. But they're actually contracted to bring in the 23 for these five victory tour matches. Um, I already wrote my Jill Ellis is actually a good coach column um, and got a lot of flack for that, that that was during the World Cup. Not perfect, but I think she's a, did a lot better, you know, results aside than most people thought. Any closing thoughts? Any thoughts on a successor? Any thoughts just in general? You know, got probably Kate Markgraf's going to be the general manager. So what are we thinking about the state of the team right now? I think that this is probably going to be in someone who's already affiliated with U.S. soccer type hire um, for, for a variety of, of reasons. So I, I think they could probably be a little bit ambitious on whoever they, they end up hiring, which, hey, prove me wrong. I hope I'm wrong. There's some great coaches out there um, that could just take – this team is already amazing. They could take it to a whole new level. I'd love to see someone who would take all the attributes that make the U.S. team the U.S. team and bring in a little bit more – um, technical and tactical skills. Um, but I suspect that we will see someone who's been with U.S. soccer for a while now. Just That's, that's just what they do these days. I think um, an interesting choice would be Steve Swanson um, because that brings in somebody internal, which U.S. soccer seems to like, somebody who knows not to speak out or speak their mind <laughs> too much. Right. And uh, Swanson was an assistant in 2015, an assistant 2019, very similar to the way Ellis was was one of Pia's assistants. Uh, Swanson also has a long legacy at UVA, and uh, he won the 2012 U20 World Cup with Dunn and Mewis and um, who else was on that team? Ertz and uh, I forget. Yeah, that, that roster but, was packed. Yeah, I know Carrie right. Ricaro is not a main name, but I know she was on that team, among others. You know, and it's a lot of the current players, the the building blocks for the future, too, that, you know, he's already, you know, has relationships with as well. So that team, by that, the way, that would be. I was going to say, if you talk to people about the 2012 U20 team, a lot of coaches refer to it as that U20 team. And you just kind of know that's what they mean. Yeah. That, it's like the team. Yeah. Swanson's actually the name, the, the person I'm going to pick, although I haven't actually heard his name floated around in any official circles. And I guess kind of like Ellis, he's got the legacy of being a coach at a really top college program without a national title, right? 
Right. How about the NWSL coaches, though? Well, wait, Hank, did, did did he win it when Morgan Bryan was a senior and Colaprico was in that midfield, or did they take second? I know they played in the final. I thought they did not. Let's get let's look that up while we okay. continue chatting. What was the question, Dan? <laughs> I was thinking about Swanson. Sorry. Uh, well, you can talk about Swanson, or what about you know everyone's talking Vlako Andonovsky, Laura Harvey. Paul Riley. No. For some reason, Mark Parsons not getting mentioned, even though I think he's the best. I'm not a huge fan of any of the NWSL coaches for the job, to be honest. I think most of, if not all of them, would struggle for various reasons. Um, I think Harvey's a little bit not quite adaptable enough. I think we, we've kind of seen that over the last couple years. Um, I, I don't think Riley would do well with the politics of the job, and also. Um, the the egos on the team the the bigger players you know that's kind of been one of the differences between say his Portland team and his Western New York slash North Carolina teams. Um, I like Flacco for the job. Uh, I think Dan, it was you who pointed out to me when we were discussing this off the air at one point that maybe he wouldn't like the politics of the job. So yeah, I, I'm just not a big fan of most of those coaches for this job. I agree 100%. I actually think Parsons is the coach among that group that would handle the politics the best. I think Vlatko would be like Sermani 2.0. Now, maybe you could get away with that more now because they're not chasing the World Cup like they were when Sermani got there. But I think Vlatko would want to open up the pool, and I think Vlatko would want to take players out of the lineup because they're not performing well. And I don't think he would want to cater and kowtow to the veteran players. Now, again, it's also a very different group of veterans than we had when Sermani came into the job. But I think that would be my hold up for Andonovsky. Well, and I kind of that's why I think the timing of Ellis leaving is very interesting, because I was one of the ones who thought for sure she'd stick around for the Olympics and make another go at that and then leave. And at that time, I think we're going to see a significant number of veterans either retire outright or retire from international play. They're, They're at the age they've. Most of them have won pretty much everything. Um, so I think the timing of it is, is changes things a little bit to where they can maybe get a little bit more of an experimental, risky coach rather than right now. I think they're going to – that's one of the more reasons I think they're going to go with someone internal because I think they kind of want to stick to the status quo. John, you want to jump in on this? I just thought I, – I, it was interesting because Chelsea mentioned the roster and about when players might move on, and, and I don't think that she's wrong. Um, but I remember in 2015, I had that feeling about a lot of players and a lot of those players moved on. You know, if you look at the 23 that went to the world cup, um, in 2015, there were something like, it was like half the roster turned over in a year. It was really crazy. You know, whether that was, you know, um, I think there were like four or five retirements and then obviously a couple don't make the roster cause the roster's smaller, but there was pretty significant change between those two rosters all right good conversation let's continue it in the next segment virginia in 2014 did get to the final you're right john lost to florida state and mark Krikorian, who's another name that has been thrown around and has a little bit of experience in u.s soccer but we'll continue the discussion about jill ellis's successor on the other side this is the equalizer podcast 
middle segment of episode 71 of the Equalizer podcast, Dan with John and Chelsea, and a friendly reminder to please rate and review the Equalizer podcast today. The more uh, reviews and better ratings that you give us, the more great content we can bring your way. So please rate and review the Equalizer podcast. Today, we're picking up a conversation about what is going to happen with Jill Ellis stepping down following the October Victory Tour matches. Any thoughts that maybe they will bring in a quote-unquote interim coach? I don't know if I'm just still smarting from the fact that the men didn't qualify for the World Cup and then took over a year to name another head coach when Arena left. But any thoughts that they might do an interim coach? That way, if they flame out in the Olympics, you're not putting a quote-unquote new coach in an impossible spot, but you leave open the possibility that that person can be the permanent coach. Is that crazy? Well, I don't well, think I mean, so. Yeah, and also kind of what's the difference between an interim coach and a short-time coach? Because remember, Ellis was brought on for yep. the World Cup. And right. she was the, the head coach at that point, but her... She was also interim for a was, couple of weeks. Yeah. Right. So that's what I'm saying. Like, what is... Who's to say they won't just bring on a coach and say, okay, here's a year contract, win the Olympics, and then we'll talk. And it's a pretty much a very similar scenario to what happened to Ellis. And, That's not and, necessarily an interim coach. And to John's point before the break, if you look at 2015, right, already, like, it, like the day after the World Cup, Lauren Holloway retired. So that was one player down. You knew Wambach was probably going to retire. Box and Pierce and Kolopny barely played, were clearly on their last legs in terms of their international careers. That roster kind of cleared itself out for Ellis to put together the Olympic roster, which is five women less than the World Cup. At the moment, it doesn't seem like anybody's getting out of the way to make it easy for a new coach to come in. Because you've got to walk in that room in November and say, by the way, we have a tournament in the summer, and at the minimum, five of you out the door. Correct. Really difficult spot here. And well, I mean, at some point, you're not going to win every tournament, obviously, but it's a, nearly impossible to follow up in Jill Ellis's footsteps. And one of the things that you can do actually is win the Olympic gold medal. You know, it's funny that Neil, I think it was Neil Morris who said, I don't want to be the next coach. I'd want to be the coach after the next coach. Because yeah, I saw it's, that. it's kind of like Sermani, you know, there's going to be somebody in there and if it doesn't go well quickly, it'll go South quickly. And you know, they're not the one thing that Ellis had coming out of, you know, even even the Olympics, she had a little bit of rope and she used a lot of it. And, you know, we all know that there was that reported player revolt in the summer of 2017 that came after nine months of some pretty serious experimentation Um, and some pretty poor soccer. Yeah. Uh, This coach, whoever comes in is not going to have that type of rope or that amount of time. So it's but but there should be more rope than Sermani has, right? Because the program itself is in a better spot than when they hadn't won the World Cup in 12, 16 years, well, whatever it was. I mean, in general, the players do not need to have that much power that they can get a coach fired because they don't like that they're losing their spots. That's just, to me, that's ridiculous. I agree to an extent, but I do think the, the thing about the national teams is that it's a closed player pool so you that's what i that's why i had such an issue with ellis running the three five two because she just didn't have the personnel and you can't just go on the transfer market and bring in 
Wendy Renard because you think she fits that. You've got to go with the American players that you have. So, I, you know, I do think if there's a coach that doesn't suit the best players in your program, then you probably do have to make a change. Maybe the way the players went about it wasn't the right way, though. But shouldn't that also be the call of the people in charge of U.S. soccer, not the players? Ultimately, they yes. Be able to, they shouldn't be able to say, I don't like the soccer we're playing. I don't like the system we're playing. Fix this. Ultimately, yes. And you know what? All this so-called depth that the U.S. has, was there a player on that roster that they absolutely could not have lived without? Ertz, mm. maybe. Maybe. Sauerbrunn. Maybe. Sauerbrunn did not have a great tournament, though. So kinda... She didn't. Now, we've talked about I... it. Go ahead. I was going to say, Ertz is probably the closest, but other than that, I mean, I don't think there's anyone who, who was just completely, anyone else who was completely solid from top to bottom that just, even Rapino, I think she, she had great moments, obviously, but she had some poor moments, and I think somebody else would have stepped up. And they won the semi without her, which is not a knock on Rapino, but just a, it's a statement about the depth that the team does have. Now, enough people have mentioned this to me now that, you know, the players have not really been um, publicly supporting Jill Ellis since she stepped down. And I don't know what the conversations were at the game at the Rose Bowl, but does that give you cause for concern about the next coach that the players might already be sort of, um, I don't know how to, how to phrase it, but you know, if they're not giving public support to the coach that just won them two World Cups, that would make me a little bit even more hesitant to step in as the new coach having to cut players in a quick turnaround to the Olympics and all kinds of other stuff. I, I, it's just an interesting... Yeah, it's been five days. Have you seen one thing on Twitter or Instagram? And they've been together for most of them. And it's not and like the is, players are off social media right now. They're on yeah, social media. A, this is a group of players that are also very um, astute as to use their use of social media. Very. So to me, this feels like a group choice well, everything for whatever reason. A group choice. You know, it's worth remembering, too, that that revolt failed. Or reported revolt yeah, failed. Good, good so call. that was know, in the that was Sunil's era, still, right? Uh, I don't know. I it was late summer so. twenty seventeen. Um, Sunil left right after the men, which was seven. Yeah, so the election was early eighteen. After, it was around yeah, the same time period. The men lost October of seventeen. That's a valid point. That so maybe the federation won there, but. Yeah, because the players usually put things on social media kind of en masse. Right? Yes. I think that was what that was part of the biggest deal about Rapino taking the knee when she did for the national anthem was that it's just unusual for a player to get out of lockstep with her teammates so publicly like that. Um any other successor thoughts before we move on to other topics? I nope. guess I guess not. <laughs> all right, well, yeah, let's, no, sorry. All right, well, let's use Laura Harvey as a bridge then, because um, I actually you know what. One more thing, I had a conversation over the weekend where somebody said to me, "It has to be Laura Harvey, right?" And I said, "I really don't think she's the best coach suited for the job." And then that person said, "Well, don't you think U.S. Soccer wants to hire a woman?" And I said, "Well, if they do, then that puts Laura Harvey." really high up the list because are there other female candidates out there and does the Markgraf hire sort of offset the fact that maybe they 
don't have a viable female candidates for the coaching job. I don't know that the Mark Graff hire would be a conscious choice to say, hey, if we hire her, this balances out hiring a male coach. But I think it softens the, I don't want to say softens the blow, but it does make them e- make it easier um, as far as just appearance-wise. Like, yeah, okay, maybe you go hire a male coach, but look, we've not only got this female GM, but she's a previous player. People love that. John, anything on this? Uh, you know, I, I think the, the issue, um, I don't even know if issue is the right word, but the, the difficulty in hiring um, a woman coach for this job is that the pipeline is, has not been established. Um, right. There's, there's Erica Dombach at Penn State. Penn State, right. And there's Laura Harvey. And then who else is there? Who else? Amanda Cromwell, maybe. Yeah, that's, that's good. But that's, th- I mean, literally, like, can, can we not agree that that's pathetic, that there's only three, oh, that yeah. that's the pipeline? I mean, right. that's and insane. The, and the problem is we'll discuss it now when we're hiring a national team coach, but you really do have to hire the best coach. The problem is, like you said, the pipeline, which needs to be discussed every day, even when there's not a prominent vacancy. And then hopefully the next time or a couple of times down the road, it's a bit of a more even playing field when you're getting to the coaches that are ready to take over the national team. Yeah, I mean, you might be able to look at like abroad. You know, you have the, the French coach, the the Netherlands coach, uh, who also has ties to America. Right, you know, I didn't so know are, until recently, but yeah, right. Um, you know, there are obviously Pia's highly qualified, um, but Brazil's head coach. I mean, yes, in but in the United States, the options are pretty limited. All right, now this Pia news is crazy, right? Could you think of a coach whose style? is more anti what Brazil does. And th- I love the hire because I think she, she'll bring some really interesting ideas, but she's got to coach them differently than she coached the U.S. to even have a prayer, right? I think this would have been an interesting hire like seven, eight years ago. Yeah, I think they either, she either does spectacularly or fails miserably. Like, I don't think there's any middle of the road. It, it's either she's going to be exactly what this team needs to bring them to more of a, a cohesive discipline team, or it's just not going to be a fit at all, and, and she's going to flame out in a year. Sounds about right. And build around Dabinia, by the way. Build around Dabinia. All right, um, let's bridge with Laura Harvey, because whether you think she's a viable coach for the U.S. or not, she is struggling big time in Utah and facing five years out of seven now in this league without being in the playoffs. And, John, you were there. Uh, I called the game. I know, Chelsea, you found out I was calling all the games this weekend and decided to make other plans so you didn't watch a lot of NWSL. So I appreciate that. Um, Yeah, that's exactly the story. (laughs) Exactly how it went. Uh, But, John, Utah's a mess, right? Uh, Yeah, they they haven't won a game since June 15th. That's seven weeks without a win. Um, Harvey did not initially want to talk to the media last night. That's unusual um, for her, even when she loses, too. When she did, she was um, – you could you could hear the emotion in her voice. Uh, you know, I don't know if it was anger or frustration, but, like, there was clearly something bubbling up there that I think – I don't know if she's just at a loss, you know, with her group uh, or, you know, you know, sometimes when you're a coach, you can't figure out what's wrong. Or sometimes you're frustrated at your players for their, you know, execution or lack thereof. But um, yeah, she 
she had kind of skipped the mix zone and then uh, got talked back into coming out eventually, um, but was clearly frustrated. And, um, you know, it was it was an interesting game, too, because uh, I think they significantly outshot Chicago. I yeah, thought, they, they did. Uh, they gave Chicago plenty of problems. They not only could have equalized, but could have won that game at, at several points. Um, but also so I could have lost by four. Yeah, probably, because right, Kirk could have had five. That uh, one Barnhart save where she kind of went down and then reached her arm up, that's one of the best saves I've seen in this league. And uh, the other thing Harvey was upset about was the second Chicago goal. Um, and I know right before it had happened, Colaprico had gone down with an injury, and I, it sounded like Harvey thought Chicago may have been unsporting in the way that that whole sequence got restarted. But I don't remember exactly what happened from the throw. I don't um, but she said that, you know, she said that Colaprico went down, they threw it back. Um, and then immediately Chicago was in on goal. I don't know what Chicago is supposed to do when they're given the ball back, but, uh, but anyway, she sounded That's upset by that. See, so I thought first half, Utah was trying to build, and they couldn't build. Chicago's always been really good pressuring you in the midfield, and the Royals were pretty much able to do nothing. Then it opened up a little bit, but Kerr had way too much time and space in this game. And granted, she's an excellent player, but you can't start off by giving her too much space. But I wonder if maybe the Royals need to try to open it up and see if they can win 3-2-4-3 instead of these one, two goal games, because they've conceded, I think the same number of goals as games played and they're under 500. That's almost impossible. And they've got press and Rodriguez. Yeah. I mean, well, they've had press for six games. I right. think fair so. enough, but um, they don't match. They have not meshed in their time in Utah. Yeah. You know, it was interesting what you're saying there about the beginning. Cause I thought early on, um, they made sure that Nikki Stanton and Danielle Colaprico had no time whatsoever. And then that you're right, the game really opened up. Now, some of that's Chicago scoring. You know, when a team scores, the other team pushes, it opens up more space on the counter. I think that really plays to Chicago's style to, you know, get Kerr in behind. But the other thing that was really impressive on Chicago's end was DiBernardo and Nagasato just providing service and creating plays yep. and combining it was just tremendous last night. Now, last thing on the Red Stars before we go to the segment after this. I feel like sometimes you watch the Red Stars and you're like, all right, this isn't working out. They need to blow this team up. And then other games, kind of like the Utah game the other night, you watch them and you're like, this team could really give Portland or North Carolina some problems. But I feel like every time they lean toward one direction too far, they push back toward the other. And it's kind of been that way for a few years now. Is that fair? It is, but I think... The, they, they've always done well, or at least two out of the last three seasons, they've done really well against North Carolina. Um, I, for me, the key is, can they win a game in Portland? Because that's kind of been the Achilles heel. You know, I know they've lost to North Carolina in the playoffs, but when you, when you watch them in the regular season go to Portland, that's where they've struggled to get a result. Uh, ironically, that's where they struggled to get the result last year against North Carolina because right. of the semifinal getting moved. But um, I think if if they can, and I haven't looked at the rest of the schedule, but if they head out to Portland one more time, that would be the game I'd watch to see. That I think give you a really good sense of where they're at because they killed the rain two weeks ago. I mean, just absolutely killed them. Yeah, absolutely. 
and in the meantime, they were losing home games to Sky Blue in the middle of the World Cup. <laughs> Correct. So, you know, it's, it's hard to hard to figure. All right, that's uh, going to do it for the middle segment. We'll come back more NWSL talk and some of your thoughts and questions. This is episode seventy-one of the Equalizer podcast. Third and final segment, episode 71 of the Equalizer podcast, and it is time for the Sports Reference Stat of the Week brought to you by Sports Reference. And the for the best and most up-to-date and ever-evolving women's soccer stats, go to fbref.com. That's FB is in football, fbref.com. And Christine Sinclair's penalty on Saturday night was the 200th penalty in the history of the NWSL, the 138th penalty converted. Sinclair, 8 for 9. Ironically, she beat Kaylin Sheridan, who actually stopped her in the one penalty that she missed. And what did she do after that? She followed it up by scoring on the rebound after that one a couple of years ago. The most penalties scored in the history of the league. Anyone want to give it a shot? Go ahead, Chelsea. Nobody's paying attention to me. I have no idea. It's Kim Little, who took a lot of flack for all the penalties she scored on her way to 16 goals. She's got 12. Diana Matheson has nine. And how about this? The most penalties without missing is two for Dal Kemper, Daly, Fus, Huerta, Noyola, and Havana Salon. So take that for what it's worth. Two. That's all. That's all. Kind of sad. One, I don't think 138 for 200 is that good a percentage. That's less than 70%. I don't know what the percentages are around the world. I feel like we don't make enough PKs in the NWSL. So, all right, anyway, that's the Sports Reference NWSL Stat of the Week brought to you by Sports Reference. We thank them for their uh, continued support and partnership, and you can check out women's soccer stats at fbref. Dot com. Dan with Chelsea and John Thorns and Sky Blue. And for whatever reason, Sky Blue always gives the Thorns a match when they go to Portland. Some weird officiating in this game. I thought there was a blatantly missed penalty not called against Sky Blue. Then I thought the penalty they did get called was a bit questionable. And then I thought Amandine Pierre-Louis could have been sent off before she was for her second yellow card. Um, John, I know you watched um, a majority of this game. Uh, what are your thoughts overall, including the fact that I, that's a be- I think that's the best Sky Blue has played in about two years? Well, I would agree, at least early in the game. And I think you had mentioned this on the broadcast. Like the first 20 minutes, Sky Blue looked fantastic. Yep. And then I don't know exactly what adjustment Portland made, but they certainly kind of tilted that back in their favor. Um, the, the one thing I really wanted to talk about was the – the penalty um, because I thought that was kind of a makeup call for the, well, either the first or the second one on purse. Um, I agree. I don't, I think the first one was nothing. The second one was a blatant penalty. Okay. See, I thought the opposite, but either way, I thought there, there was a call for a penalty in there earlier. And then the one on Rasso, like, is that a foul? Yes. Is it in the box? Yes. Um, but it was after she got rid of the ball She's getting bumped. She got the pass off. You could have looked the other way on that one. Um, but I think it was kind of a cumulative issue. And then there was the other one that was late um, on purse as well, um, where she got hit pretty hard and she was down on the ground for a while too. So she got beat up pretty bad. She got in behind quite a bit on uh, 
Sky Blue's back line as well. She did. I thought she had a terrific match. I'm not quite there on the Midge Purse needs to be on the national team train yet, but I thought she had a really nice match against Sky Blue. But I think Sky Blue, yes, the Thorns tilted in their favor, and the Thorns have better personnel even without Heath and Sonnet and Haran. But I thought the fact that Sky Blue didn't get rolled over after the Thorns took over and scored what you could call an unfortunate goal to go up one nothing in halftime, I give Sky Blue a lot of credit because I don't think they bounced back like that. And I think since, I mean, I hate to say it, but since they've made the coaching change, um, I think they're playing a lot brighter football. Yeah, they got a point on the road, and they got a point on the road in Portland. And they did it from coming from behind. I mean, all three of those are accomplishments in and of themselves. And I, I still, I'm not sold on the Thorns' defense. I know Sonnet wasn't there. Sonnet also wasn't that good pre-World Cup. But, you know, sometimes I watch the Thorns, and I'm like, all right, this is the team. And then I watch them another, kind of similar to what I said about the Red Stars. I watch them other days, and I'm like, they're, they're beatable if you can game plan well against them. I, it'll be interesting to see how they do. Now, they don't have to go east of Utah the rest of the season unless they get to the final or have to go on the road for a playoff game. But uh, I'm curious to see how they how they kind of fall in line when their players come back. Yeah, and I, the one other thing I wanted to add about that match um, from Sky Blue's perspective is that Sheridan save in the 89th minute where yep. she got her hand down to that ball, which was absolutely spectacular. Because, and pushed it off the post. Yeah, because Portland easily could have won that game in that moment. Yeah, and how about and that was a Simone Charlie header. And I don't think the Thorns get the credit that the Red Stars get and that maybe the Vlako Andonovsky teams over the years get for kind of quietly developing these players. Charlie was with the team last season as a non-rostered player. And, you know, they went, the World Cup started, and her and Midge Purse were playing like they had grown up together. And then she comes in off the bench and almost wins that game on Saturday night. I, I don't think they get enough credit for how they develop players in that way. All right, Chelsea, did you see either of those calls, or should we just get right to the red card in North Carolina? No, yeah, I did not see those calls, so go on. Well, let's red card North Carolina. Go. Um, Yeah, I thought that was bogus. I I don't think that Binia had control of the ball. I think that the Bledsoe was always going to get it to her. I think we're caught up on the fact that it was the last defender, I think that there was minimal, minimal contact. I think the Binia <laughs> felt a hand on her, which they're allowed to touch, and <laughs> and went for it. I think it, I think it was completely bogus. Okay, but do you agree? I know you said <laughs> you said off air that you disagree with me, um, but don't you you do? I think you would agree if it's a foul, it's a red card, though. That it's tough. Like I said, I don't think that she. Yes, she was. I mean, gosh, she was almost inside the box at that point. But is it an obvious goal scoring opportunity? If she had control of the ball, yeah. But I just, like I said, I think the ball was too far ahead of her. I don't. That's a tough one. But a lot of it for me goes back to the fact that I don't think it was contact. If there was legit contact, and she for sure had the ball like at her feet, of, of course that's a red card. I just, I don't know that I agree on either of those. I don't think there was real contact, and I don't really think that she was going to be able to shoot that ball. I, w- I wonder if we need maybe a, some sort of middle ground on this, because 
I, I mean, I, I agree. I think I said it. There wasn't much to the contact at all, if there was any. Like, do you really want to send a player off for that, even <laughs> if there was contact? And do you really want to change the Thorn Sky Blue game for a foul that is like in the, you know, in a very mundane corner of the penalty box after the attacking player already gets rid of the ball, right? Like, technically, that's a foul, but do you really want to make that a penalty? The other thing is, go ahead. You have going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say this is kind of similar to the some of the VAR issues we brought up during the World Cup where, yes, you're going by the letter of the law, but I think there needs to be a little bit more, maybe the law needs to be um, written more clearly and allow them for a little bit more flexibility on, on that call. Because I would like to see uh, if there's an inadvertent handball in the box that doesn't dramatically stop a scoring chance to make it an indirect free kick, not a penalty. For sure. I am 100% on board with that. Now, sometimes you get an inadvertent handball and you can't help it and it was about to be on goal and it's just bad luck. But there are times where you see these calls, especially, like you said, in the VAR era, which is coming eventually probably to NWSL, uh, you know, where that becomes a problem. Now, what about the, a couple minutes later? I think it was Maggie Doherty Howard got away with a pretty significant shirt tug. That was definitely in the box. That was definitely a shirt tug. That was definitely a foul. How would you have handled that one? Or you can disagree mm. with everything I just said, but no, no, I, I think you're. I think that one's a little bit more legitimate. Yeah, and then I, also at that point, like I'm always pretty big on consistency with officiating. If you call one, you kind of have to call the other, don't you? I would think so, but that would. Uh, I mean, would that have been a red card? Because I, I mean, I didn't look at it that closely, but I think that was last defender also. Mm, I don't. I didn't watch that. I think maybe you're right, though. I mean, would they, you know, could you imagine that there'd be a team down to nine before halftime in one of these games? I mean, it, it's a newest NWSL. It's pretty physical. It wouldn't surprise me at some point or another. Um, but, I mean, uh, that also, to clarify goal-scoring opportunity, is that why should it always be the last defender? Is that always um, 1v1 with the the goalkeeper? You'll say this... This takes say that, that everyone is pushed up and this foul takes place um, at, at the center circle, but it's the last defender. Does that, you know, wh why is it always come down to last defender? Well, the to, red card to determine a, a goal scoring opportunity. I mean, the red card on Alana Kennedy, she was not close to the 18, relatively speaking, in the World Cup. It's true. I thought those thought that was a little bit more egregious of a foul, but. I know, I think, totally. Maybe, yeah, totally. I, I think you're on to something with the Doherty Howard one. I, I think you're right. We can agree on that one. Now, how about the fact that North Carolina should have won this game by a lot more than they did? And when Urseg slipped in like the 85th minute, that, should, that game really should have been 1-1, which would have been a really weird way for it to end up in a draw. But I thought the Spirit did pretty well, considering they were down to 10 for over an hour in really hot conditions you know, and a day that they thought they were going to be at home and then they were playing a day game after sitting up all night on Friday waiting to see if they would play. I was fairly impressed. And I think the courage, although they're in first place, you know, it's weird to say. I think they're just kind of playing eh right now. Yeah, I think we talked a little bit last week about how our expectations may be a little bit too high for the courage this season. But also, I think you combine the fact that they're missing four very important players with the fact that some... Urseg, uh, Hinkle, Zerboni are not playing quite to, to maybe their best. 
there, yeah, this was a game I just, I think they should have, yeah, I agree. I think they should have won it a little bit more handily. Kudos to the, to the Spirit for doing what they did, but that should have been a game North Carolina put away a lot easier. So I think that maybe they're a little lucky to escape with the point, and we shouldn't be viewing that game as, as such, but it is. Or um, it's two, three points, my bad. Final thoughts there. I thought Shayna Matthews was excellent, especially with what they were asking her to do, and I think that it exposed the Spirits' lack of depth on the back line, that the only answer they had was to stick Andy Sullivan back there. After they had Nielsen sent off, we'll see what they do when Nielsen misses her match. And I agree, Hingle hasn't had as good a season, but I thought her service in this game was fabulous, and that Spetsmark flick back to Dabinia for the goal was sensational. Um, Rain beat the Dash 1-0. I didn't see much of this game, though I did see the goal. It was a very Flacco Andonofsky-like goal. Let's just sign a player and have her come in and score a goal just when it seems like our season is falling apart. And on the flip side, the Dash only have eight games left. Some other teams have as many as ten, and they just can't seem to win games they need to win. They can't win at home, uh, but for anyone who saw any of this, any anything else on Rain Dash? Uh, for me, it, it reminded me a lot of the Dash Red Stars game a couple weeks ago. They they go down early to to a goal they probably shouldn't have given up, get plenty of chances for the rest of the game, and you cannot put them away. That that is their finishing is is dreadful. They don't have the composure inside the box that they need to, and but they had plenty plenty of opportunities to take at least a point, if not all three. And, and and as you point out, they need to be doing that at home. That's they got to fix that to do anything in this league. John, you got anything on this one? I know this one is uh, one of the matches I didn't see at all. So okay. I'll, uh, I will say I'm with uh, Chelsea on the Dabinia guard. I thought that was a, uh, I thought she just went down. Okay. I, I, there was like nothing. I could not see any kind. Con- I think maybe, she stepped on Paige Nielsen's foot and then fell down two strides later. So. Now, do you agree, though, that red card, if if foul, then red card? If she has control of the ball, which I thought Chelsea was making an interesting point, because I, I think the, the argument that she dived uh, or dove is tied in with the argument that um, she lost control of the ball, because what players who do dive do is usually when they've lost the advantage or the potential for advantages when their footing suddenly gets shaky and their balance gets bad. Exactly. Um, Especially when it's a player that never goes down. Yeah. You know, and and I think we're all pretty grateful that I think in women's soccer, we see a lot less of this, um, you know, than, than probably what we're used to with watching the men's, but you can see Dabinia clearly take two strides after she, again, in my opinion, stepped on Paige Nielsen's foot. So, and I think it, we're creeping up, though, in the uh, level of gamesmanship we've seen in the women's game. Let's wrap it up with a couple of oh, questions. Yeah. <laughs> in 2009, I did, is the Twitter handle, sent in a bunch. What possible strategy could NWSL be using that calls on them not uh, hyping sponsorships when they happen? Couldn't agree more with this the Budweiser sponsorship they've got naming rights to the final and the MVP but they haven't named them yet it's been a month and I've been to one game John's been to a couple I've seen zero signs of Budweiser anything different in Chicago uh not that I've noticed but I I agree with the premise of the question I mean the Nike deal had been done at least you know what Jeff had reported since May 
Um, And they just wouldn't do it. And then the Budweiser deal, like, hey, that's great. They announced it at midnight East Coast time, I think. 2 a.m., something like that. Certainly most people were in bed. It wasn't even a good time for France. I think it was like 7 a.m. or something. It was like, who's, you know. And you figure they might have done it that way because they were rushing to get some visibility, but there hasn't been any. So I don't know what the rush was. Yeah. Yeah, the answer to, to what possible strategy could could they use is is any because they're not using any at all. They, there's yeah. no strategy whatsoever. <laughs> all right, I, we should have just gone with that and put this one to bed. Same uh, question or how poor does the refereeing have to be uh, before it's addressed by the league? Trickier than you think because the refereeing is not controlled by the league. It's controlled by the Professional Referees Organization Pro. And you have to remember, like everything else, like the PR people, like most of the coaches – Nobody aspires to be an NWSL referee. In most cases, it's a stepping stone for the best. I agree it's got to be better, but it's a little bit more complex than meets the eye. Same question, or do you think Sky Blue will hold off on getting a permanent coach until they're more stable, or do they need one now? I hate to say this. I think finding a coach is the least of this team's worries at this point. I mean, you know, they're sold out their game against the rain which they kind of tease might be moving to Red Bull Arena, but now it maybe seems like it's not. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think it matters who coaches this team. They need to figure out how to get fans in and how to make some money and how to stop the bleeding off the field. I, yeah, but I, I think it's kind of a, a poor look to at least not name one of those assistants. Oh, as, horrendous. Okay, this is our in- interim head coach. It doesn't mean they, they can't still all be making the calls together, but somebody needs to be the face there. Somebody needs to be the one to talk to the media. Somebody needs to be a little bit answerable to just some, some conglomerate of coaches. Do they have the licenses though? Wasn't that the, one of the issues that they couldn't name one of them, the coach, because they didn't have the requisite. I've been led to believe they do not, whether that's yeah. the reason they're not naming one. Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. But that could certainly be it. All right, same question. Or what is the most pressing issue for NWSL going into season eight? You only get to pick one apiece. Who wants to go first? I'll go front office is my is my pick. They need to the owners are gonna have to step up and fully fund a front office that has PR and brand management and somebody out there negotiating sponsorship deals. Because if if US soccer steps away, which uh, I think we're all under the assumption that happens at the end of this year, um, the owners are going to have to pick up the slack. They can't keep running this half operation. It's, it's insane. Yep. But uh, I will add to that in the interest of just choosing something different and not saying that's a great idea, John, because it is a great idea, John, it's probably the best answer, but also I think maintaining this high attendance and not falling back into two or 3,000 people a game. I'm going to pick something that's a little bit off the beaten path, at least to what people want to hear about, and I'll say communication, but not only the communication where they're like, hey, the U.S. players are not going to be around this weekend, but I've seen too many instances this season where fairly high-profile reporters and writers go to games and do not get treated the way that they deserve to be treated. And I realize that nobody who's listening wants to hear the media whine about it, but you're going to wind up having people that get to choose what they cover, detesting the NWSL. And believe me, word about these things spreads in the media circles very, very quickly. And the NWSL is positioning itself to be a league 
that people who have a choice do not want any part of. And that might not show in any sort of short-term metric, but I think in the long term, it's a big problem. All right, Jill Kochman, who was in the running to be the next head coach, if the head coach turns out to be someone from the NWSL, who takes over for that team? I think we covered the first. I think the second one is pretty vague because it depends on the team. It's, you know, it's not a league where people really necessarily will go anywhere to be a head coach. Uh, but thanks for the question, Jill. And finally, Rob T., two-parter, and uh, we'll tackle them together. One, happy for an expanded field of the 2023 World Cup, but had to divvy up the eight more spots. FIFA rankings say all Euro, but that seems wrong. Um, then some suggestions. And also thought about CONCACAF Olympic qualifying. Um, two spots open makes final and third place match irrelevant. Instead of two group winners playing opposite runner-up, play A1 versus B1 and A2 versus B2. The first one qualifies as the winner. Then the loser of the uh, A2-B2 match plays the uh Winner, uh, sorry, the loser of the A1-B1 match plays the winner of A2-B2 for the final spot. I think that last one is a great idea. Um, in terms of the World Cup spots, you can't give them all to Europe because that defeats the purpose. But the big thing here is you've got to get qualifying for this thing on better terms because that's what's going to spend the money. This notion that 32 teams is going to make people, make federations spend money, the fringe teams aren't spending for 24, so why are they going to spend for 32? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's right. I mean, we're, we're talking about the same issues that we were talking about, you know, with a handful of teams in this last World Cup. So. And finally, Janine, one just popped up from Janine. Appears to be very little chatter from U.S. on Jill Ellis' departure. No tweets. Rose said something nice in an interview. Ertz barely said something in another interview. Is she that unlike? Seems very different than Sermani leaving. That's an interesting take on Sermani. I don't remember necessarily about Sermani, but I do know that Sermani, the person, is almost universally liked by everybody that's ever had anything to do with him. So that's an interesting contrast. Yeah, I feel like I remember when he left that there were some players who openly spoke out about him not not wanting him to, to leave as their coach, which obviously was in contrast to the ones who wanted him gone. All right, parting thoughts on the week? Thoughts on the week ahead? <laughs> I hate midweek <laughs> games. Can, is that a thought? No, and I, 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 I get midweek it. games. You know, I kind of like the late games because I get – John Mayer, I don't know, John, you're more of an early guy than me, but yeah, like me, you've, sure. got, you've got the full family in the house. Late games, everyone's out of my way. I got to relax. Yeah, but you in. don't sleep. Yeah. Well, that's a valid. That's valid. Some of I us love our sleep. I like the 6 a.m. EPL kickoff. Can we do that? <laughs> uh, how about, you know, Blacko has handed Laura Harvey some of her most devastating losses over the years, and they're going to play. Uh, I think Sunday, and that could be another one because the Ro Royals actually play on. They both play midweek. Royals host Sky Blue. Royals need points big time, big time. Yeah, points. they're running they, out. I mean, of, they're running out of time. It's one thing to miss the playoffs. It's another thing to go into September, October irrelevant. All right, I think that just about wraps things up. This has been episode seventy-one of the Equalizer Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. For John Halloran and Chelsea Bush, this is Dan Lawletta. You've been listening to the Equalizer Podcast. <laughs>